Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. The last few years in the United Kingdom have seen a dramatic shift in the political landscape greeting refugees from rhetoric and policies that could be called hostile to ones that are actively expulsive. That is the thesis explored by Professor David Hurd in the talk you're about to hear. It's titled, Walking the Expulsive Environment, Refugee Tales and the Politics of Welcome. And it was delivered at Queen Mary College London on the 12th of June as this year's Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture. David Hurd is professor of poetry at the University of Kent. And since 2014, he has also been co-organizer of the project Refugee Tales, which calls to an end to policies of immigration detention and shares the stories of people who've experienced it. In this talk, he explores how the policy of detaining migrants indefinitely has come to prevail and reflects upon how it might be countered. His talk is introduced by the co-director of the Raphael Samuel History Center, Professor Nadia Valman. Tonight we're gathered for the 24th annual Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture. Raphael Samuel, who died in 1996, was one of the pioneering historians of the late 20th century. He was at the forefront of new approaches that today are familiar to us all. Memory studies, oral history, critical heritage studies, and history from below. Gareth Stedman Jones wrote that Samuel, quote, wrote with the insights of a literary critic, the acuity of an anthropologist, and the wit of a political journalist. And in particular, Samuel promoted the extension of historical studies beyond the academy. He taught at Ruskin College, Oxford, and towards the end of his life at the University of East London. In 1966, he held the first history workshop, which encouraged participation from students, as well as lecturers, to conduct and present research. And in 1976, with a group of colleagues, he founded History Workshop Journal, which today continues a close relationship with the centre. So today, we're also marking Refugee Week, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor David Hurd. David is Professor of Poetry at the University of Kent, an award-winning poet and co-organiser of the project Refugee Tales. His work is at the intersection of writing and human rights and combines scholarship, public engagement and writing in exceptionally creative and engaged ways. David's most recent collection of poetry, Walk Song of 2022, was a book of the year in the Australian Review of Books. Through of 2016 was a book of the year in the Herald newspaper and David has given readings in Europe, North America, India, Australia and the UK. In collaboration with Anna Pincus and colleagues at Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, David has co-organised the project Refugee Tales since 2014. Through that work, he's helped articulate the call for an end to the UK's policy of indefinite detention and for a future without detention. Refugee Tales makes its call by sharing the stories of people who've experienced indefinite detention. Stories are told as part of large-scale public walks and have been published in four volumes by Comma Press. Building on the work of Refugee Tales, David's critical history, writing against expulsion in the post-war world, Making Space for the Human, will be published this year by Oxford University Press. He was principal investigator on the British Academy project, Hostile Environments, Policies, Stories, Responses, from 2019 to 2023. And he's the co-lead of the University of Kent's Migration and Movement signature research theme. He also previously ran Town's New Poetry Festival and is co-editor of the magazine Free Verse. His talk tonight is entitled, Walking Against the Expulsive Environment, Refugee Tales and the Politics of Welcome. Thank you. 
thank you very much. Thank you, Nadia, for that uh, very generous introduction. Um, so, and thank you for the invitation to give the Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture. It's, a, it's an honour to discuss the work of the Refugee Details Project in the context of Raphael Samuel's brilliantly dynamic history making. I'm grateful to Nadia and to Joseph and the Raphael Samuel History Centre for the opportunity to do that. Refugee Tales was founded in 2014, almost a decade ago now, and I want to use this lecture as a way, as an occasion to think through the emerging context in which the project now finds itself working. In so doing, I'm going to touch on certain ideas and concepts that animated Raphael Samuel's radical engagement with history, and which continue to make it an inspiration for anybody working at the intersection of politics and culture. From the outset, Refugee Tales has been entitled A Walk in Solidarity with Refugees, People Seeking Asylum, and People Who Have Experienced Immigration Detention. As such, as an ongoing walk in solidarity, um, in which stories are shared, there are various coordinates that the project has in common with Raphael Samuel's work. Story, centrally, and the necessity of uh, hearing and proliferating stories. Landscape, as a collective setting which has to be critiqued and remade. I'll also be pointing in the lecture to an element of the built environment. So the built environment is a crucial term in Raphael Samuel's work, as you'll be aware, where the built structure in question is the so-called immigration removal centre, more accurately, of course, the detention centre. In the second volume of Theatres of Memory, edited by Alison Light, Raphael Samuel demonstrated the need constantly to hear, mobilise and critique what he called islanded stories. That was the, uh, that was the second volume um, of the Theatres of Memory uh, sequence. In the present moment, in ways that have to be constantly underlined, detention and the means by which people are detained is at the core of the story the UK government tells. So in reflecting on the emerging context in which Refugee Tales finds itself working, the lecture has three parts. I'm going to consider the shift in the UK political landscape from what was officially termed, as we're all very well aware, a hostile environment, to what should increasingly, I want to suggest, be called an expulsive environment. I will then consider um, how the practice of detention features in that changing environment, in part to explain precisely why it is on the question of detention that the Refugee Tales project continues to campaign. And finally, I will consider how a project such as Refugee Tales can intervene on these changing environments by framing what we might call the right to be heard. It would be entirely wrong to suggest that the new politics emerging in the UK can be easily countered. But there is no counter-politics that does not include the obligation to hear the stories of people seeking asylum. But before I embark on those uh, discussions, I want to just say a little bit um, by way of introduction to the Refugee Tales project itself. So, Refugee Tales, to reiterate, a walk in solidarity with refugees, people seeking asylum, and people who have experienced uh, immigration detention. Um, We've made lots of pictures of walking during the project. If you go to the website, there are lots and lots of pictures of us walking. As such, as a public walk, the project is a collective. It is the work, as we repeatedly say, of many hands, many voices, and many feet. The explicit purpose of the project is to call out the fact that the UK is the only country in Western Europe that detains people indefinitely under immigration rules. A, a statement that uh, needs constant underlining to remind us of that fact. Detains people indefinitely under immigration rules. The project calls for a future without immigration detention and as a matter of political urgency an end to indefinite detention. The way the project makes that call is by sharing the stories of people who have themselves experienced immigration detention. Stories are shared in multiple ways. The principal way in which the stories are shared is in the form of the tales themselves, either as a story told in the first person or where a person's anonymity has to be protected as a collaboration with a writer. Stories are first shared, and it's a really important detail, in the context of the walk itself, in the walking, within the walking community, and then subsequently published in the volumes of Refugee Tales. 
as the project has developed, however, so the stories are increasingly shared in multiple ways, as films, as contributions to inquiries, as literature, fe at literature festivals in political meetings, as exhibitions, as letter exchanges in dialogues with politicians. Much of this you can see on the Refugee Tales website, in particular the section devoted to the walking inquiry. I'll just say a little bit about the walking inquiry for a moment. The walking inquiry was an initiative within Refugee Tales, which, started in, uh, which began in 2019, and it was Refugee Tales' response to the ongoing public inquiry into abuses at, uh, at, at the, de the detention centre at, uh, at Gatwick Airport. The, uh, the public inquiry into abuses at Brook House was triggered by a an undercover panorama programme into the treatment of people who are being detained. Uh, uh, one of the members of staff took an undercover camera into, uh, into the, the Brook House Detention Centre. Panorama made, one of a, uh, made a film about that. Eventually, this was in 2019, eventually this triggered a public inquiry. The public inquiry is a good thing. We welcome the public inquiry, but its remit is very small. Is investigating abuses in the Brookhouse Detention Centre in the period April 2017 to October 2017. Our walking inquiry was set up simply to point out that detention, abuses in detention did not start in April 2017 and end in October 2017. That detention in itself is in and of itself abusive. And the walking inquiry which sets itself up as an inquiry as a way of gathering evidence from all kinds of other voices that the public inquiry might not hear. The books themselves, there are now four volumes, are used in lobbying members of parliament, a process is now, that is now led by the Refugee Tales Parliamentary Self-Advocacy Group. The project tells MPs that the stories contained in the Refugee Tales volumes are the result of the policy of detention and are clear evidence that detention has to end. The call for a future without detention and for an immediate end to indefinite detention is the core of the Refugee Tales project. The project had its origins in the work of the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, as, uh, as Nadia was mentioning, led by the inspirational Anna Pincus, a charity that has visited people held in detention at Gatwick Airport for over 25 years. As the use of detention escalated, I'll come back to this, in the early part of the last decade, um, people who were detained increasingly said two things. First, it was clear that people in the UK were unaware of the policy of indefinite detention and second, as a consequence, that the stories of those detained were not heard. Refugee Tales was thus founded to raise awareness of the scandal of indefinite detention, but also to ensure that the stories of those detained were not excluded from the record, that people detained were not expelled from the language itself, physically present in the country but rendered linguistically absent. I first became aware of indefinite immigration detention in 2019 when I became involved with a project called Kent Refugee Help, a group that visited people detained at the Dover Immigration Removal Centre. Um, situated on the top of the White Cliffs of Dover and housed in a Napoleonic era fort, the detention centre at Dover was hidden in plain sight a symbol in 2009 of an already increasing hostility towards people seeking uh, people from elsewhere seeking the asylum of a life in the UK. That symbolism is by no means incidental since the politics of bordering is invariably at some level symbolic, a performance of hostility intended to deter. At that level, uh, uh, as a symbol of hostility, the Dover Immigration Removal Centre could not have been more eloquent. Surrounded by, so this is so the shaded area that you can see around the buildings there, that's a moat approximately 100 feet wide and 100 feet deep, which, and you can't see it there, is uh, itself laced, or was itself laced, with huge coils of barbed wire. Visible, um, if a person's new, uh, new to look for it, from, uh, if you're on a crossing from Calais, it incarcerated men, it was male only, who frequently, on arrival and for some time afterwards, were not told where they were. But if detention is symbolic, it is also um, it, it is a symbolism with profound and extensive material impacts. So in 2022, over 24,000 people were detained indefinitely uh, in the UK. A, stati a statistic which is both shocking and which also 
uh, increasingly provides only a partial picture, since modes of detention, and this is very much part of the point, and I'll come back to this as well, are themselves being proliferated. Detention might be for a matter of days or weeks, but it can also be for a matter of months or years. The longest the Refugee Tales project knows a person to have been indefinitely detained under immigration rules is nine years, a person who was actually detained in Lincoln Prison and was sort of forgotten about until the uh, Chief Inspector of Prisons found this person during an inspection um, and uh, his, that person's release was enabled. So sort of abandoned to and abandoned by the system. Such detention is arbitrary, which is to say that nobody is charged with any crime, and since they are not charged, they are not subject to due legal process. Some people detained might have committed a crime for which they will have already served their sentence, and where the crime in question will frequently be the result of the UK's punitive and criminalising asylum regime, for example, working illegally. More typically, the only crime, in quotation marks, um, which of course is not a crime, is the act of seeking asylum, where the absence of settled status means that a person is always subject to being detained and, crucially, re-detained. The fact of being detainable, it's an adjective, it's, a, it's, a kind of, it's, a, it's, a, it's an appalling and crucial adjective in this context. The fact of being detainable is a defining condition of the person seeking asylum in the UK, where the effect is that a person is frequently re-detained, most commonly when signing at a Home Office reporting centre. Of all those detained, over 60% are not, as the administrative rationale suggests, removed to another country, but are returned to the community, this is the phrase, returned to the community, there's not really a community, but in other words, allowed out of detention, where once in the community, they are prohibited from working and subject to re-detention. The question, of course, which returns us to the symbol of the process, is why were they detained if they weren't going to be removed, even by the administrative logic, why were they detained in the first place? There is much to say about the material reality of detention, and to understand that reality, I would refer you to the volumes of Refugee Tales and to the findings of the Walking Inquiry. Suffice to say that detention is a prison where some of the rights accorded to prisoners are not observed. A person will be held, these are details that, that come out through the stories and also through the walking inquiry, a person will be held in a cell for 23 hours a day. Frequently, um, this is uh, uh, an important detail, for the whole day the light will, be not, will not be turned off. They will have little access to the outside world, including legal representation, since their phones will be taken away on entering detention. They will not know when they will be released or um, whether they might be removed. Some people report experiencing the pretense of removal, which is to say where people detained are taken to the brink of removal, all the way to the bus that would take them to the plane only to be returned to their cell. A number of people report this practice. Many people detained have already experienced trauma and many also have no experience of incarceration, a combination which leads large numbers to self-harm. The great majority of people detained are people of colour because detention is a structurally racist regime. It is also, if this, if this isn't obvious already, an abuse of a person's human rights. As Article 9 of the, article of the Declaration of Human Rights states, uh, because it's fundamental, nobody shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention or exile. And there's a lot of detail here, and I, I sort of, I don't really want to apologise for this. This is detail in the, in, the, um, in the manner of thick description. We need this thick description, I think. We need to know what is occurring in these spaces. It was because people were being detained in this way, in increasing numbers, that in 2015, refugee tales first walked in solidarity, and the project has been walking ever since. Um, the first year we walked, we walked from all the way from Dover uh, to Crawley, which is to say from the site of the Immigration Removal Centre at Dover all the way to the, uh, to the detention centres at Gatwick Airport. It was, a, it was an epic nine-day walk. In our naivety, we thought if we just made it really clear to people that the UK detained people indefinitely, that would be sufficient to shock some kind of uh, people into some kind of political reaction. Um, that hasn't been the case. But what we did realise at the time was there are all kinds of consequences of walking um, and around community, which it was valuable to sustain. And so the project has been walking, as it were, ever since. 
Uh, every summer, the project undertakes an extended walk during the course of which it shares the stories of people who have been detained. The act of walking is crucial for a number of reasons. It establishes visibility where the purpose of detention and the asylum regime as a whole is to deny visibility, to render people who are physically present socially and politically absent. The walk is the basis of a community where, similarly, the effect of the asylum system is isolation. And in order to hold the community together, the project walks on a monthly basis between extended summer walks. More symbolically, but I think not incidentally, the walk is an act of reclaiming, where a landscape that has been designated a hostile environment is reclaimed in the name of a politics of welcome. In this sense, and notwithstanding the gravity of the stories that are shared, the Refugee Tales Walk, I hope it doesn't seem strange to say this, is a celebration. It's an act of visible community in the face of a politics that functions by rendering people who are present absent. So, I want now to talk a bit about um, the transition that we are uh, experiencing from the hostile environment to the expulsive environment. So since Refugee Tales first set out in 2015, the landscape through which it walks has altered. In saying this, my meaning is metaphorical. The walks largely take place in southern England, since that is where the organisation is based, and so the ground itself has remained quite largely unchanged. What I mean in saying that the landscape through which the project walks has altered is that the environment itself has carried an intensifying political charge. What is quite largely at stake, in fact, for the walk and the politics, and in the politics to which it is opposed, are the terms in which the landscape itself is imagined, the way the landscape itself is framed. That charge, that political charge, was first applied to the landscape um, in 2012, as you'll be aware, when the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced her intention to the Daily Telegraph to, quote, create, you'll know this phrase, to create a really hostile environment for illegal migration. It is a phrase, um, of course, which has attracted a great deal of commentary in the past decade, not least because unlike some political pronouncements, it was made true. It has rightly been observed that the word illegal in that, uh, in that phrase is used erroneously under international law as initially framed by the 1951 Refugee Convention. It is entirely legal to seek asylum in another country. That is precisely what refugee law is about. The aim of the word was to criminalise movement, an act of criminalisation that has only intensified since. In passing the phrase, we should also note the verb create, so that's what the Home Secretary said at that time. She wanted to create a really hostile environment. Since um, the, the interest there is that what the verb confirms is that the political realities with which we are repeatedly presented are in fact acts of thought. It is such acts of thought, deliberate, meticulous acts of political thinking that I want to keep coming back to. And I'll be layering uh, details on as we go. Where I want to dwell for a moment, however, is on that term hostile environment itself. It is a phrase which can sound somewhat vague, indicating a kind of broadly antagonistic space. To speak of a hostile environment might be to speak of a picture of territory that is generally unwelcoming. What we need to appreciate, however, is the degree to which the environment itself is being, is being constructed, or rather the precision with which the asylum policy with which asylum policy through the 2010s sets out to frame the way the person seeking asylum would experience the environment. I want to take the phrase both metaphorically but also extremely literally. To give, to give just a few, uh, a brief image of this through a few details of the immigration, of immigration legislation. The person seeking asylum in the UK is forbidden from working. That prohibition itself is environmental in that it denies any kind of productive relation to a lived space, where such a prohibition can continue for years, not uncommonly over a decade. At the same time, it is important to note that a person, a person seeking asylum is allowed to work in a detention centre. That's not me, is it? No, good. It is allowed to work it is allowed to work in a detention centre for the deeply abusive payment of one pound per hour. Detention centres, it should also be noted, are privately run, and so profits are increased by this abusive, by these by such abusive rates of pay. In the absence of work, 
While seeking asylum, a person might receive a statutory payment. That payment is just over £35 per week or £5 a day, on which a person might be required to survive for months or years. Crucially, when the payment was introduced, it was made not as cash, but in the form of a voucher, where the voucher could only be set, spent at certain shops and on certain items, and, on one, and one item on which it could not be spent was public transport. What we have to picture here is that at some point in the framing of Home Office policy, somebody in the Home Office was tasked with producing a list of items that the voucher could be spent on. Okay? So this is, and this is the degree, this is, this, is the, this is why it's important to understand the detail, because um, this is not just a generalised, generic sense of hostility, but a very particularised, specific, itemised um, uh, form of hostility. This is environmental. Unable to use public transport, the person seeking asylum has to walk everywhere, where the movement through space has been constructed as a negative act. One place to which that person would, would walk is the Home Office Reporting Centre, where a person might have to report their presence in the UK on a weekly or fortnightly, maybe a monthly basis. What they're, what they're reporting on uh, in, a, in a kind of in a deeply 19th century sense is they're reporting on the fact that they haven't absconded. That's what's being reported on. It is when people report or sign that they are most likely to be detained or re-detained. And so the regular journey to the reporting centre is framed by acute anxiety. When detained, they are frequently moved from one centre to another, quite commonly at night. Um, in, the, in the evidence gathered in the walking inquiry, um, Lucy Williams, sociologist at Kent, observed that in the UK prison system, as opposed to the detention estate, it is not legal to move people at night. Um, um, in recognition of the distress that such movement causes. People held in detention are woken at three in the morning to be told that they will be moved, but often not where they're being moved to. Likewise, a person who is provided with accommodation under the National Asylum Support Scheme, NAS, which is an, itself an increasingly rare occurrence, is frequently moved at short notice from one part of the country to another. The government's term for this process, it has a term, the term is dispersal. The individual is regularly dispersed. To understand what dispersal means, and in particular how it frames a person's relation to their environment, it is interesting to note that the term features in the work of Franz Fanon in his discussion of, quote, Algeria dispersed in studies in a dying colonialism. Um, ah, okay, uh, more walking. Uh, Fanon, as Fanon puts it, the tactic adopted by French colonialism since the beginning of the revolution has had the result of separating the people from each other, of fragmenting them with the sole objective of making any cohesion impossible. This effort was first concentrated on the men who were interned by, thousand, by tens of thousands. The Algerian woman, I'm apologising on Fanon's behalf for the gendering that's going on here, will go and visit her husband interned 100 or 200 kilometres from his home. You'll see the point that Fanon is making, that there is a dispersal going on. There is an active breaking up of community. And the point that I'm making, and I'm not at all alone in making this, is that if we really want to understand these processes that constitute what we call the asylum regime, then we need to be relating them um, to uh, histories of colonialism. There are many other details where the point is precisely the detail through which successive acts of legislation have constructed the imaginary that we have come to call the hostile environment. In the 2017 Immigration Act, for, for example, it was legislated that a person seeking asylum was no longer allowed to drive a car. The chances of doing so were probably slim, but what mattered was the gesture. At every step in each space they might be likely to occupy, the person seeking asylum was to experience the environment as hostile. It was not a vague term at all, not a generalised expression of political intent, but a meticulously planned programme of alienation where the effect defining daily life was hostility. The landscape, sorry, where the affect defining daily life was hostility. The landscape through which the person seeking refuge walked was intended to be felt as hostile. In the past three years, more or less since the beginning of the pandemic, the construction of the environment in asylum and immigration policy making, whether rhetorical or legislative, has altered. You'll have noticed that it's altering. 
In part, I think that reconstruction is a consequence of the fact that the policies of the hostile environment had become increasingly legible and therefore possible to counter at the level of political analysis. In part, the reconstruction has occurred, I think, so, you know, this is, this is speculation. What, what, what the, the chronology of this is that, so there was, there was a very recognisable hostile environment that we could all call such and we could all identify its coordinates until sort of 2019. And then there was the pandemic. And actually, during the pandemic, the detention centre, the detention estate basically emptied because it was understood even by policymakers that it wasn't, it wasn't possible to keep people in detention during the pandemic. That caused all kinds of other problems. But then what's, what occurred through the pandemic, it, there was, it was clear that active thinking was taking place, or it has become clear that active thinking was taking place around policy at that time. And what has emerged subsequently is a different kind of regime. In part, the, the reconstruction has occurred, I think, because the mode by which people seeking asylum in the UK has itself altered. So that where people were more typically arriving invisibly under lorries or in the back of cars, now they're more typically arriving by the also extremely dangerous method of small boats. There are many things to note about the increased use of small boat crossings as a means of reaching the UK to seek asylum. A key consideration, however, is that by international standards, the numbers of people remains very low, very, really very low. Comparative statistics, you may all be really aware of this, so apologies if I'm telling you things that you know. Comparative statistics are well known and easily obtained. The five countries in the world that received the most refugees in 2020, Turkey, 3.7 million, Colombia, 2.5 million, Germany, 2.2 million, these are UNHCR statistics, Pakistan, 1.5 million, Uganda, 1.5 million. 74% of the world's displaced people are hosted in low and middle income countries, 69% are hosted in neighbouring countries. The fact that the number of people who crossed the English Channel by boat rose to 45,000 in 2022 is not, uh, is not of great significance as a statistic when set against the numbers of people displaced internationally. Whether it is causal or incidental, the fact of people arriving by boat has coincided with the changed construction of the environment in border rhetoric. So that whereas previously the intention was to make the environment of the UK itself hostile, to create a really hostile environment, the principal objective now is to push people away or expel, where expel means to force out. The evidence of this intention to push people away, to expel them, is not hard to find. Under the terms of the 2022 Nationality and Borders Act, and setting aside the still evolving illegal migration bill, it became illegal as the right to remain website detailed for someone, it became illegal, quoting now, for someone who needs a visa to enter the UK to arrive in the country without one, which sounds like a little bit innocuous, except it's not, of course, since, again to quote, nationals of all refugee producing countries must have visas to enter the UK, the intended consequence was that, quoting again, Almost everyone who enters the UK to claim asylum will now technically be breaking the law, where the crime carries a maximum sentence of four years in prison. This was coupled with the fact that the Act granted the power, uh, the Home Office the power, Secretary of State, to treat asylum claims by people who had a connection to a third country inadmissible. In such cases, the Home Office is entitled to remove the person to a third country where that third country may not be the one that person has travelled through. And, as you'll be aware, Rwanda is currently uh, the country of choice in this regard. Here again, one might argue, the sense in which people are pushed away is metaphorical, received and then removed perhaps, but not actually pushed away, except that again, the rhetoric by which the refugee's relation to the environment is constructed bears directly on actual experience. As the Observer newspaper recently reported, in the month before the tragic incident in the English Channel in which at least 27 people lost their lives, 
uh, that was November 2021, as the, as the observer reported, around 440 people appear to have been left adrift after the Coast Guard sent no rescue vessels to 19 reported boats carrying migrants in UK waters. More precisely, following the tragedy in question, then British Home Secretary Priti Patel announced to the House of Commons that it was the government's intention to use armed forces to push small boats back across the channel. There has been a change then in the, way the U, in the way UK asylum policy, if it remains possible to say that there is such a thing, and there are, there are excellent colleagues in the law department at the University of Kent who work in a law clinic which provides pro bono support for people who are seeking asylum, um, who say that if, if, if it's the case that the um, illegal migration bill were to go through unchanged, which it might not, but if it were to, it would barely be possible any longer to speak of an asylum policy or even actually asylum law in the UK because people are simply, people who are seeking asylum are being held out. So, uh, the, there's the, the, the UK, a UK asylum policy constructs the relation between people seeking asylum and the landscape or environment. Um, the, way, the way this has been constructed has changed. The express objective is not any longer to create or maintain a really hostile environment for so-called illegal migration, but to expel those seeking to come here to another environment altogether. One can speculate on why this shift has occurred, and indeed, arguably, at some, and, and at some level, arguably, it indicates that the programme of hostility itself is not sustainable at the level of resource, perhaps, and that's, um, that's, that's clearly a consideration, but also perhaps even at the level of social cohesion. Arguably, to have hostility, hostility positioned so squarely at the, the centre of a democratic polity is to so undermine that polity as to threaten its cohesion. But however we interpret the shift from a hostile environment to an expulsive environment, we need to reflect on the terminology itself. The importance of not expelling people who are claiming asylum, of not pushing them back, was precisely at the core of the 1951 Refugee Convention. Just to quote from that convention, as that document states, Article 32, expulsion, the contracting states shall not expel a refugee lawfully in their territory, save on grounds of national security or public order. I won't read it all, but you can see it. Article 33, prohibition of expulsion or return, refoulement. No contracting state shall expel or return or refoule a refugee in any manner whatsoever to the frontiers of territories where his life or freedom would be threatened on account of his race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. The point I'm making with reference to the 1951 convention requires a bit of qualification in the sense that third countries to which a person seeking asylum might be removed may not be territories where a life or freedom is threatened on account of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or religious opinion. May not. Okay. But, and it's a really important caveat I think, we are on and have been on for some time now a deeply worrying continuum. Against the principles of the 1951 Convention, the UK government is now framing policies, the explicit aim of which is to expel, or, or more precisely, to push back. The word for pushback in the Convention is pushback. I've got the pushback. The word for pushback in the Convention is refoule, which doesn't mean return exactly, but rather to force something back. It derives from the old French where it was applied to liquid and means, among other things, to push back into a channel. We should listen more carefully to what the language tells us. The fact that the principle of pushing back is captured in the document by the incorporation of a French word in an English language text has the effect of drawing our attention to the importance of the term. What it should highlight is that, as the drafters of the 1951 document understood, asylum policy must not be constructed on the basis of a relation to the environment where people are expelled or pushed back. The precise degree to which the policy objective of expulsion would alter lived relations to the environment has yet to be determined. Since the balance of symbolism and material reality in emerging immigration asylum policy has yet to become clear. Even in the past few days, for instance, and we were talking about this in the workshop earlier, 
The government appears, it's unclear, but appears to have suspended the distinction, its distinction between Group 1 and Group 2 asylum cases, where the latter, Group 2, constitutes those who arrive by so-called irregular routes. But there is nothing about this partial relenting that can permit complacency. So, after the Home Secretary was first granted to power, took the power to indefinitely detain under immigration rules in 1971, um, uh, that power was barely used for 30 years. In 1973, 95 people were indefinitely detained in the UK. By 1987, that number stood at 2,166. In 2015, 32,000 people were detained indefinitely under those rules. Similarly, follow the following the construction of a cashless economy for so-called failed asylum seekers in the 1999 Immigration and Asylum Act. I'm not naming governments because I think that this is not, we get confused if we think of this party politically, as it were. Um, so in the 1999 Immigration and Asylum Act, it was that act that introduced the economy of vouchers that stigmatizes and controls movement. That, that power was barely used through the, the, uh, the 2000s. It was activated in 2012. In other words, once you put bad, leg bad legislation on the step two book, it sits there waiting to be used. So, um, sort of coming towards an end, the politics of detention. The fact that the political landscape through which, which Refugitas walks has continued to change means that the project has to reflect on the context in which its central demands are made. Not that those demands will change, um, but to note that the function of detention in, in the political environment is altering along with the construction of that environment. And this needs to be thought about quite carefully, I think. As a practice, detention has been fundamental to the hostile environment. We could express this in many ways. On the one hand, the fact that a person can be detained or re-detained arbitrarily and indefinitely means that the environment is always at some level hostile. Where this possibility is always the case, then the environment will always carry some kind of threat. In another sense, however, detention is the permission that the hostile environment requires. To detain a person indefinitely is to deny this, to so deny them their human rights as to permit other kinds of denial and mistreatment. The strongest form of this argument would be that the hostile environment requires indefinite detention because such detention creates the image of personhood on which sustained hostility depends. At the same time, insofar as it was central to the hostile environment, indefinite detention was not difficult to argue against. Difficult to change, for sure, but not difficult to oppose. The reason for this was that the hostile environment was a picture of the UK itself. Theresa May pictured it for us. We are creating a really hostile environment. It's a it was a picture of the UK landscape. And since the UK remains publicly committed just, this is really in the balance, publicly committed just to human rights, detention could be pointed, indefinite detention in particular, could be pointed to as an anomaly. Indeed, so anomalous had it become, had it come to seem by the end of the last decade, that the law was on the brink of change. Under the last parliament, when the government had only a narrow majority, there were sufficient government MPs embarrassed by the human rights implications of indefinite detention to ensure that had there been a vote, the policy would have changed. There was an immigration bill going through Parliament just as Boris Johnson prorogued, and that immigration bill, which would not have been good, but it did have an amendment that, um, that established an end to indefinite detention. Um, and it would have passed, it would have, the votes were there, and then, pro, and then Boris Johnson suspended Parliament, uh, there was a general election, and so the vote that would have changed the law didn't happen. Since that moment, the debate around detention has altered. There are various reasons for this. One is that forms of detention, as I've indicated, are proliferating. So whereas previously uh, there were between at any one time 10 and 12 uh, uh, purpose-built immigration removal centres, now there's a whole sort of range of facilities, some of which are called accommodation. It's, being, it's becoming increasingly difficult to, uh, to determine what constitutes detention. It seems, a, it seems a kind of deliberate aim to blur the category. More generally, we are witnessing an attempt to mainstream detention as a political strategy. According to the terms of the Nationality and Borders Act, detention will not be, this is, I think this seems to me particularly important, Detention under that act, detention will not be an exceptional experience, however common and frequent, 
of the person seeking asylum, but will be um, the experience of every person who, as the new legislation describes it, arrives in the country without legal clearance. To repeat, under international uh, refugee conventions, people are not entering the country illegally. As, um, as immigration lawyers have observed, the fact that the 2022 Act makes it a criminal offence in quotes, to arrive in the UK without legal clearance, where the word arrive has replaced the word enter, that can mean that people seeking asylum are automatically committing an offence by setting foot on the UK mainland, the consequence of which can be imprisonment. This goes back to that Raphael Samuel image of an islanded story. This is an islanded story. Even to step on the island is to commit a crime that can have the consequence of four years imprisonment. The contradictions here are vertiginous. In effect, the person who claims their human rights at the point of arriving in the UK loses their entitlement to those rights in the act of making the claim. Detention then, according to this narrative, is not anomalous, but the generalised practice for all people looking to cross the border to request refuge. The government has addressed this has addressed the problematic matrix of what Giorgio Agamben called the state of exception by making the exceptional state of detention the political norm. And this is and so and all of this means that um, the the arguments around detention are altering and uh, people. Um, who are campaigning against detention have to uh, adjust to that fact, not to adjust the demand, but to understand that the context is altering. So, uh, last part, the right to be heard. If you, if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you won't find an explicit itemised right to be heard. Though in Article 11, it is stated that an individual has a right to a fair and public hearing. What you will find, however, is that the whole declaration is in fact predicated on the right to be heard. That the right to be heard underpins everything. That without the right to be heard, there are no human rights. The evidence of this is the preamble to the document. So if, to, just to consider the opening three paragraphs, I won't read them all, uh, of the declaration. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, peace in the world. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights has resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of, conscience of mankind. The advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief of freedom from fear of want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. Whereas it is essential if people are not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. These three um, paragraphs proclaim three ideas that relate to the right to be heard. The first is recognition, one of the, the key ideas in the document. The second idea here is the idea of free speech, that the freedom to speak is amongst the highest. So they don't say free speech exactly, they talk about the freedom of speech. The freedom to speak as, um, uh, as one of the highest aspirations of the common people. We need to put these ideas together. To recognise a person's freedom to speak is precisely to listen to them, to give them a hearing. One crucial context in which that hearing should take place is the law itself, where, as Article 14 puts it, um, the universe, what the Universal Declaration protects is the right to seek asylum. Immigration detention, especially indefinite immigration detention, and especially immigration detention as a default of border control, is an act of silencing. People who are detained are very, very literally cut off, denied access to the phone, to their phone, so a person who enters detention Many things are taken off them at the point of detention, including their phone, with all their networks, with effectively with their community. They're denied access to their phones, to their networks, to legal representation. They are situated in a place of silence. They are denied a hearing in the legal sense in that their detention is arbitrary, which means precisely that they are detained without due process. Such denied hearing runs right through the, uh, the existing asylum process. In the volunteer's tale, first told by R, uh, he has to be anonymous, but first told by R to the Refugee Tales Walk in 2019. Uh, R is from Sudan and he recalled at one point in his, uh, in his story one of his asylum interviews. As he put it, uh, I got there at nine o'clock in the morning and it went on and it went on until about two o'clock in the afternoon. It was a woman who interviewed me. She asked me uh, hundreds of questions. Then she went right back to the beginning and asked the first question again. She wanted to make me confused. She asked the same questions all over again. And I was just, I was 
tired, as R, him, uh, who, has, who has himself been repeatedly detained, puts it, I heard that you had human rights in the UK, but where are those rights? Sometimes they make me feel like I'm a criminal, like when they put me in detention. I knew nothing about detention before I got here. Life in detention is really completely different. It is no life in detention. You know, you don't know if it's the day or the night. Everything seems longer, even the days and the hours. In total, I've spent eight or nine months in detention, something like that. The ongoing extension of detention involves an ongoing extension of the act of silencing. When the current British Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, announced that people entering the country illegally, that word illegally again, when she announced that people entering the country illegally have, quote, remarkable, have, quote, values that are odds with our country, she was engaging in an act of broad political silencing. People crossing the channel to seek asylum, she was announcing, do not have the right to be heard. Against this background of systematic silencing, the purpose of the Refugee Tales project is to share the stories of people who have experienced immigration detention, or more precisely, to create a setting in which those stories, among other stories, constitute the context. Literally, but also metaphorically, the walk is that context. It is the setting where the stories of people who have been detained are heard. This sharing and hearing has to be undertaken with care. People who share their stories are at considerable risk from the situation from which they fled, from the British authorities by whom they might be re-detained, and because invariably they have experienced trauma. Through the different processes of storytelling, the project has evolved, and I think because the stories themselves become part of the walking community, the difficulties of sharing stories are somewhat mitigated. More than this, what the project has witnessed since it was founded in 2014 is a proliferation of modes and contexts for stories. One highly significant recent event was the launch in the Houses of Parliament of the Refugee Tales Walking Inquiry into Immigration Detention. At that event, three people with lived experience of immigration detention, Riddy, Pius and Seth, spoke directly to a room of politicians. I don't want to overstate any part of this process from the story to the walk to the dialogue with politicians. I do want to suggest, however, that some such process is fundamental to the claiming and defending of human rights. It is this process Etienne Balabar spoke about when, in his short statement, What We Owe to the Sans Papier, when in that statement he spoke of the fundamental necessity of people without documents, he was speaking in the French context, obviously, becoming, quote, actors in democratic politics. At the moment, in the UK, the principle of human rights is under attack, not just individual rights themselves, but the principle that such rights obtain. What this new situation reminds us is that human rights are always a site of struggle, that they are not granted even though we would wish for them to be granted, but that historically they have always had to be defended, fought for and claimed. What that claim to human rights asserts is the right to be heard, the right not to be consigned to silence. For this reason, as for so many reasons, it is crucial to end detention. Detention is the state's way of silencing those whose rights it refuses to recognise. Refugee tales exist because those the state detains have to be heard. Thank you. Many thanks to David Hurd and the Raphael Samuel History Center for making this episode possible. You can learn more about them and their work on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter or X at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.